you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, Amazon Prime, all the places where you can see it. I did a little dance, but it was like Elaine from Seinfeld. It didn't work out. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in pre-production of my third, Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Theo Brown on the show to talk about writing and directing his first feature film, An Electric Sleep. After that, we play another round of Y'all the Expert. But first, Liz, how are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm not sleeping and it's really hard to do everything you want to do when you don't sleep because your brain doesn't work. And mm. that's disappointing to me because I really like to be productive and my brain's not letting me. We never got a, I think you've been, have a child that has slept through the night long ago, but our child has never slept through the night. So we've been going on six months of not having a child sleep through the night. Lately, it's been like every two hours she wakes up. So that's been difficult, but that's what I'm experiencing. And then for film, we did hear back from a talent offer and she likes the script, but she doesn't want to be the first attachment. So now we're in this new game of finding who the first attachment will be and will they be enough to sway our first outreach to be our second attachment. So fun. Sleeping, not sleeping, attaching people, not attaching people. Life. Did she say why she didn't want to be the first attachment? Well, we don't even know for sure if it's her or her reps, you know, mm. because this is kind of a strategy reps may say because they don't quite know exactly what type of movie you're making mm. or mm -hmm. especially in the low budget world, right? Like we, we kind of gave a range of 300 to 600k for our budget and i think maybe they have fears that it's going to be one thing instead of another so we don't really know if it's from her or not mm -hmm. yeah but if you can get a name on board you know or somebody else then maybe she'll be like yeah i'll come in now you know and just someone that she respects you know someone that she thinks is cool is probably so, what we got so do. it doesn't need to be a famous person it just needs to be somebody that she her work she admires so she's I like think okay so. i'm in i'm in good graces with this project that's how i'm interpreting it so that her and the rep feel like we're that the the taste isn't questioned right that we have great taste and we can land other people so they don't feel like they're the first one like standing naked outside you know in the wind or whatever the expression huh. is i'm not sleeping this is probably Man. not an expression so they really don't make it easy on us do they these people it's like no. oh, you, you filmmakers you, if you really want to make a movie you gotta work for it you know and like, we will put some effort into it and we will <laughs> and we continue to put ourselves through this because we care what, what are you up to what, what's going on in your life or in you know the podcast life well i don't even want to talk about my kids because you know, it's not fair. <laughs> don't talk <laughs> about your sleeping situation. It's like I just I had a big victory this last couple of weeks. And so, I, yeah, well, anyways, so good on that front. I mean, we're, we switched schools. 
well, not really. It's not really fair. It's like our one of our kids got our school got COVID. The teacher got COVID, oh. so she was down for a week. And then they also have a, a down week this this month for like spring break or whatever. And so then we were like, hey, there's this other school that we can go to that's like super in, inexpensive. That like for the money we're getting back for the missed week, we're like we could do the whole month. Of this other one. So now we've got two weeks where she's going to a different program with a friend of hers, you know. So it's like, that was really great. The first day of that was today. But yeah, movie stuff. Not a lot going on. Um, I watched The Creator, which was really good. I don't know if you've seen that. No. It was really wonderful. I mean, gosh, Gareth Gareth Edwards is just a great director. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it kind of felt like, I don't know if you've seen his first movie, but like it's so like indie and low budge. You know, and but it's also a sci-fi movie. And then, like, Mm -hmm. you see him, like, go through Star Wars and then come out the other end and then make this movie. And you're like, okay, like, this is, like, the sensibility of you as an indie filmmaker, but with money. And, you know, with the free reign to do whatever you want. And this is the the cool, awesome thing that you made. Awesome. Sign off. Love it. You know? So that was was enjoyable. I, I, I can't remember what I wrote last. I think I wrote after the, the last podcast but like it wasn't like I fell asleep <laughs> while writing uh, I think I maybe got a half a page but at least I looked at it you know I, I was like I at least I have to look at it you know yeah so I was That's gonna good. look at it last commendable night commendable that you did that like that you forced yourself yeah I ended up playing piano last night and not looking at it but I'll look at it tonight that's my goal is at least look at it and maybe write something we'll see but the big thing that's going on in the world is the podcast is going through some changes. We uh, got approached by like a, a company that is going to like kind of I wouldn't I'm not like going to call them producers. They're more like like a partner, I suppose. Yeah, they're they're well known. They they actually do the sh- the sports shows I listen to are like part of part of their their network. So I was like, oh, cool. I've heard of you people before. Neat. Awesome. It doesn't really mean anything like in, in the immediate future for like. The expansion of the show, but there are a lot of possibilities where like we could end up in more places in the future as a show, whether that means radio or television, maybe in the very far, far future. None of that's promised in the contract, but it's like definitely something that like they want to do with their lifestyle brands. Mm -hmm. So it could be something that we could be a part of in, you know, five years or who knows, whatever. But the biggest change that you're going to notice and maybe even notice right away is that we're going to have more ads on the show. And this is just the way that this show is going to continue to live. I know that we always like, you know, leaned on our Patreons, Patreon, Patreon patrons for this. But like, you know, just to be honest, like we didn't have enough of a following on Patreon to like pay for the show. So like the show has still been like kind of coming out of pocket and like, you know, between the sponsors that we've gotten here and there and the Patreon, we've been able to make it live, but like we're basically barely able to keep the ship afloat. And so with this new partnership, the show will actually be taken care of for the future. And then there's also some growth that could happen there. So we could start seeing some live events again. We could start seeing some more things happen with the show potentially. You know, or we maybe the show will grow in other ways that we haven't even conceived yet due to this thing. So it's a really exciting partnership. It's a really great thing. It's just going to the show's going to be a little different going forward. There's no more paywall. Paywall is down. Well, actually, it's not down yet, but it's in the process of coming down. They thought it was going to be down instantaneously. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it didn't work the way they thought they were going to do because it's actually it's like through the same host that we have through Simplecast. So they're working on auto like batch on undoing what we did to put the episodes behind the paywall. Mm-hmm. But that's still in process. But we are already ported over to this other network. You're going to see our website's going to look a little different now. Actually, right now, I don't even think our website is anything at the moment. I think it just goes to a blank page. Let me just check. But uh, soon it'll 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 be redirected to the the proper place uh, where you'll see our show our show page. Oh no, it's still there. It is still there, and it's still working. Yay! <laughs> Yay! It's still there, and it has the latest episode. So no, so don't scratch that. Website's still good. But yeah, you'll you'll see some more changes to the show soon. I just hope you guys enjoy where we take the show. And I really appreciate all of your support. I appreciate all the patron team support, you know, from everybody we're on Patreon. We're still keeping the Patreon, but we're just going to do it differently now. Yeah. And we're, we're going to think about some other things that we can do to, like, you know, give you guys some extra bonuses since, like, the big bonus of the paywall is gone. Now you'll, we're going to do other things that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, make it a special experience for the, for the people who decide to join us on uh, Patreon. And then we're also doing bonus episodes are going to come back. We're going to be doing our throwback episodes on Thursdays, which we did for a little while. And then I quit when our <laughs> my kid was born because it was too much to do. But we're bringing that back, you know, just because it's going to really help, you know, our expansion because... Apparently, Apple Podcasts is doing some new things where, like, they're limiting uh, the way that the show gets to people. And by doing two episodes a week, it'll help not be limited. So it's it's partly because of this new partnership, but it's also partly because Apple is screwing all our podcasters. And everybody's numbers have gone down in the last, like, two months or whenever this uh, Apple update has happened. So, yeah, this is a way to be unscrewed is doing two down, two episodes a week. But, yeah. So exciting stuff, people. Exciting stuff for the podcast. You know, I'm uh, really curious to see what the next phase of the show looks like um, going into the future. But the other thing that is really exciting to, to take out, take a look at in the future and in, and now is our Patreon page. You can go to www.patreon.com slash podcast to check out our Patreon page. That's where you can support the show and, and become part of our inner circle and help keep this thing moving forward. The other thing that happened is we have an iTunes review. What? Oh my goodness. Yes. I can't believe it. We have one, our first one for 2024. Cal Barnes is the winner of the contest for first reviewer of 2024 for the MMH podcast. This is what Cal writes. Great podcast for aspiring and first time filmmakers. Five stars. Big fan of this podcast by Liz and Ulrich. Been listening for a few years and I always hear something valuable every episode. It's a great podcast for first-time filmmakers looking for inspiration and knowledge on how to get their first feature made. Boom. That was the goal. It's a smaller filmmaking community in L.A. than people realize, and they've interviewed a handful of artists I've worked with over the years, which is always fun when old acquaintances come on talking about the success of completing their first feature. Good stuff. Highly recommend. I know, Cal. (laughs) You do? (laughs) I pitched to work on Cal's latest feature, The Astrid Experiment. He did not hire me. Um, But look what he did very kindly instead. Actually, this is kind of the same (laughs) level of of kindness, I think. Thank you, Cal. It was very nice of you to write such a kind review. Thanks so much to Cal. And if you want to be like Cal, you can 
you know, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other places that allow us to rate and review shows. I'm not sure where those places are, but I know for sure you could do it on Apple Podcasts. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Theo Brown. Well, we're here with writer and director Theo Brown. Welcome to the show, Theo. Oh, man. Thanks so much for having me. Give us your elevator pitch on your film, An Electric Sleep. Oh, man. So Electric Sleep, it's been a while since I've done an elevator pitch for this. Uh, Electric Sleep, I would say, is about this kind of homeless vagabond realizes that they have this deadly disease and she finds the reclusive scientific scientist couple that made it. And while she's tracking them down, holding them hostage to mania cure, she's unaware that this kind of group of mercenaries from the scientist's former job is also on the hunt for them. And so it kind of cumulates in like this really interesting sci-fi psychological thriller kind of thing where, you know, things aren't what they seem kind of heard there's a bit of Black Mirror slash Twilight Zone kind of vibe. So if you're really interested in that, especially once I start people of color, we think it's the movie for you. But I'm- if you're looking for like a rom-com musical, probably, probably not. Though you might enjoy it as well, <laughs> but probably, probably not. How many days did you shoot? Yeah, that's a great question. This, since it was a micro budget, this project was a micro budget film. So of course, with those things, you know, we even approached it with like good fast or cheap right and we knew it had to be good and we could take time was definitely a luxury that we did have so we started out i believe like it was like in 2018 or something like that we shot pretty much the back half of the movie and then we were going to like shoot the rest of the stuff we had a talent break their leg not on set not on set but you know getting that call from like you know hey i'm in the the er because i rode my bike and broke my leg and you're just like, okay, get better, right? And so that pushed us through the holidays, coming back into the spring of the next year where we like finished out shooting. So that was probably right there, probably I say about like 12 days or so. And while we were doing that, our editor was working on some stuff. Our incredible editor, his name is Ralph Jean-Pierre. He's like worked on some shows and things like that. So he's been editing it, you know, in his spare time and stuff. So like once... I think we ended up kind of getting a cut like in 2019. And from there on, it was like, hey, if we can get these pickups, that would be great. And then, you know, we were kind of looking, okay, we can, we definitely, let's go ahead and do that. You know, like we have time for that. And we were like, okay, well, we'll get the pickups top of 2020, right? Like, I mean, we'll do that, <laughs> add it in, lock it in, you know, I'm pretty much good to go. But a little thing called uh, COVID happened. And so then that just kind of, you know, you're almost like right at the end of that, of that hill. And then that just kind of obviously put like a, a pause on stuff. So we ended up doing like a couple of days of pickup. So probably overall shooting, maybe obviously probably 18 days. But the other thing that's like unique with our project uh, that maybe you guys have, have seen is that there's so much VFX and stuff. And our VFX team was literally a party of one. So while we were waiting, you know, to do other stuff, we had other plates spinning and things like that, you know, like giving giving the VFX, you know, time to like really dial that in and working with the colorists and all that stuff. So even though like principal photography kind of was like spread over amount of time, we were still like heavily in post throughout it. So by the time we did like the last pickups, it was just kind of like drop in, and everything else is pretty much good to go at that point. Amazing. Not a typical workflow, for sure. 
So, so you call this this film a micro budget film? Do you mind saying like what the rough budget was and like what what is micro budget to you? Like, is that like ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I can say the exact cost, but I will certainly say it wasn't over a hundred thousand dollars. Man, it was more than ten thousand. But yeah, nice. you know, probably you know how that goes. I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> but but what I can definitely say is. You know, I've I've been living out in LA now for coming up now on my on my tenth year, but I've also worked as an AD a lot as well as like directing stuff. And the great thing about being an AD is that you work with a lot of different crew, and you know, as long as you're hitting those lunches on times and you're not going into OT, crew find they like working with you. So for when we made this, we were able to like I just cashed in every single favor I had. And we gave people points on the back end, you know, in addition to like little love offerings and stuff like that. So this was certainly one of those things where people have been surprised when they look at the production value of that and like, well, how did you get that for this amount? But it's really just, it would not have happened if it wasn't for those people that were willing to take a, to take a chance on us. And that goes from like the actors all the way down to like production design to our colorists, you know, all those things that really just hopefully help elevate the production value of the movie. And also stealing shots where we can, you know, in Riverside and places like that that don't require permits and every little thing that we could do, you know, to 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 up the production value that definitely helped our budget definitely seem like it was much bigger than than what it was. Can you talk to us about the origin of the idea? Yeah. So my good friend and at the time roommate and producer and writer, uh, Ben Taylor, we, he, he and I were both like trying to figure out, we were kind of trying to trans- transition from making shorts, like to getting to like features, kind of stuff like that. And we knew we kind of wanted to cap the budget at a certain amount, not just because of the, probably the amount of money that we could raise, but also because, you know, you guys are, are obviously very invested in that filmmaking world as well. You hear stories about people who, you know, they go all out, they get half a million dollars, something like that, but don't there's a part of making a film that is so much more than making a one or two day short, right? Like it's like running a marathon. There's so many other factors that go into play. And we knew that for us, if we were already going to be making these asks and we've never run a marathon before, we wanted to do that ourselves to make sure that we can do it and then build from there. And so we kind of going into that mind, kind of figuring out what our sandbox looks like. We kind of will like find ideas that we knew would play within that sandbox. And so this story actually, because he and I both love sci-fi, but this was actually his story. Like he wrote it. And then I kind of like did like a pass on it once we were like, this is the one. And of course, as those things go, we were like, oh, this fits in this sandbox. It was bigger than the sandbox that we envisioned. Um, but that's kind of like the inception of it is that, you know, he's a he's a black guy and, and so am I. And it really just came from like, we love sci-fi. We want to watch things that star people that look like us, you know. And then we knew like certain production value kind of things. But from there on, that's kind of where like the stories that we were looking at and we kind of settled on this. And obviously we're both huge Philip K. Dick fans and, and things like that. So there's a play on words with the title there. But yeah, that's kind of the inception of, of, how, it, of how it came. You kind of touched on this a little bit in some of your other answers, but how long did you spend working on the film from like when you came up with the idea and you decided to do it with your, with your partner, you know, your producing partner to it now being released? 
I believe we started working on just story ideas at like the top of 2018. It might've been late 2017 where we kind of did some stuff. I mean, I know I written, I wrote a feature, you know, and like we were trying to see if it can work and it couldn't, you know, and then he, I think I did another feature and we're like, uh, and then we kind of set on this. And then we kind of like spent 2018, just like really trying to hone in the story as well as the producerial side of it. Right. Like getting those things like locked in talent rehearsals, all that stuff. And then fast forwarding, we in 2020, actually, we had a cut of the movie already. We just didn't have VFX and stuff like that. So Ben actually took it to AFM, uh, the market out in Santa Monica. And actually, we got like a couple of like offers on the movie just without even having VFX and stuff. So like we were really trying to apply like all those, you know, those incredible blogs and, and podcasts, like people who've done it before. And we were trying to like make sure we were always moving in one way, even while in the other way, we were still like spinning wheels and stuff. So, you know, going to AFM, having strangers watch our movie and then saying, hey, on the market, we're saying it has this kind of value. And then for us being like, OK, wow, this is even our final form and we're getting this kind of feedback already. And then being able to go back the following year you know, with it and, and then being able to follow up on those conversations and meetings. And since I live in LA, we had like certain personal relationships through distribution places and things like that. So we were really able to be conscientious of all that process and all that. I got to give big credit to Ben because he was just taking all those meetings really and, and just like working that side and stuff. So we spent that time, we were trying to go one distribution person, we were with them and that just didn't happen to work out. And we had another company called uh, Momitsu, which is kind of like this curated, like user generated kind of like, uh, I kind of think of it as like almost like a letterbox meets Netflix kind of subscription service for like film, film lovers and that kind of thing. And they had actually had reached out to Ben a while ago while we were with another distribution company at the time. And this just seemed like very kind, you know, we just kind of had conversations with them. We ended up having our last screening out here at the Chinese theater. And he actually even came to that just because he wanted to see the movie. And like, he saw the movie there and he was just like, man, too bad it wasn't able to work out with this one, but I would love to work with you with the next one you had. And at that time, the other distribution thing just didn't work out. And so Ben was like, well, actually, you know, we are, you know, we are interested to have that kind of conversation. And so that was, that last bit was happening late summer 2023. So overall, quite a bit of a journey. But again, like it was so many little interesting, like stop, start and goes around the thing. Because pretty much from 2022 to 2023, we were just traveling, you know, the film doing like the festivals and, and things like that. Even though we had distribution already like locked up at that point, we were still, you know, because you, sub you submit the year before, right? So now you're kind of getting the acceptance to the festivals and and doing that kind of thing and 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 connecting with audiences everywhere and stuff. So that, that was really special. And also not having the stress of we're doing this, but what happens after? It was more like, oh, we're doing this, but we know that we're landing somewhere once we're back home. If you could change one thing about the film in any way, like how it was shot or something in the script or whatever, you know, what would that one thing be? Oh, I guess the easy answer is I wouldn't change anything, right? Because it was just such a, it was just such a- That's the cop-out answer, Theo. That's the cop-out so answer. Know. It is the cop-out answer. <laughs> we hear it a lot though. No, I, maybe say, if I had to pick maybe like our, the one kind of unexpected 
considering our budget, considering all the prep that we put into it, the one like unexpected roadblock that we hit was like, we had a sound designer originally and it just didn't work out. And I think like, that's, that's probably the only thing that I wish that I could, if I could go back and change is like on the posting, like, you know, locking in, like doing more vetting of like the sound design process, but really outside of everything else. I mean, there's, when I go back and watch the movie, you know, at screenings and stuff, there is like a feeling I have of, oh no, me four or five years ago, whenever we shot maybe a certain scene, it's like, no, we were doing the very best that we could with the knowledge that we had and looking on the screen, you know, and people were just like, wow, that a comment we often get, it's like, wow, that looks like a movie, you know, versus you go to a lot of festivals or watch indie stuff all the time. You know, you almost find yourself being, I don't want to say lumped in, but like being compared to different kinds of projects. And for us to kind of people who would say, Hey, it does feel like a smaller, more intimate black mirror episode, you know, like for us, it's like, wow, that's what we wanted, you know, but that, that kind of that, I think that kind of even getting those kind of comparisons only goes to show, you know, the, from the work of the DP, you know, and how we shot it specifically to the work of the colorist, to the VFX person, to the specific looks that we were doing, you know, all those kind of things coming together to, you know, again, four or five years after, you know, shooting it, that that is getting that response. But yeah, probably sound design. The, the person we ended up having do sound design was great. That's Patrick, a good friend of mine, Patrick Joyner. He was great, but but I probably, I probably would have just had Patrick going from the jump. <laughs> That's probably what I would have done. I have a a really kind of like end of the game kind of question that I want to just jump to, because just for context, I released my first feature in 2022, also sci-fi genre film, you know, so it's kind of the same, same zone, but like you you released in like November, right? With Momitu. What is, it's only been a couple of months, but like, what has the experience been like? Like how, how's the reception been? Like, have you been getting updates from them on like how many people have watched it? Like, do you have any insight to any of that? Like, you know, how's the distribution process been so far? Yeah, I got to say, well, Me Too has been great. And I think just from their inception, uh, they're a, a very new company, you know, and stuff like that. But like, even just from what I've seen, just from their rollout, I don't know when they were first started. So I, I hope they don't care for that, but it was even either maybe top of 2023 or maybe 2022. But, you know, I know I've just been seeing from there in, I think now they're, they've got a dedicated app on like all Vizio Vizio TVs and things like that. And I know they're on Roku and and Apple TV and stuff. So they've definitely hit the ground running and they've been so supportive of an electric sleep, you know, like we've been able to be on the homepage and stuff. And that's just from the outside in personally, something that I really love about Momitu. And this is something we've, you know, we've heard and maybe your experience has been like this as well. You know, when like a lot of times with distribution, it's it feels like it's almost like a black hole. Like you kind of give it and you're just like, man, I sure hope they return my emails after this paperwork is signed. And Momitu has been incredible in like sharing like different numbers and things like that, like referencing. I, I don't know any off the off the top, but I know that we were the most watched movie on their platform for like the past two months, you know, which again, that's just really, it's just a really incredible kind of thing when you're like, you're seeing like the actual like numbers and things like that. And it doesn't feel like it's, you know, you're not like in Plato's cave, like, you know, squinting at like figures dancing on the walls, kind of things like that. Like somebody's actually like opening this dialogue and having this kind of thing. And as they expand, it's cool to know that like our film is just getting more and more views. So I don't know the exact numbers off the jump but like from what i saw and from what they were saying is like they were really encouraged i mean really 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 encouraged i know they had some ranking 
that I saw at the end of November, which was just for like the month of November. And I know we were the worst, most watched movie that month. And there was like, you know, they have the rights, for instance, to like the one of the Halloween films. And, you know, obviously we're not talking about apples to apples. Very, very clear. We're not talking about that. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Like that's, you know, somebody scrolled past watching, uh, you know, a Halloween film to watch ours. As a, again, as a filmmaker, you know, who's, who who went through that journey, you know, that's a very, that's a very exciting and encouraging kind of feeling. And knowing that it's only going to, uh, spread out to to more and more kind of platforms and things like that. It's been really, really encouraging. And I think that's just credit to me too, really. Uh, and Brian and his team have just been so cool. Great working with them. So just Googling your name and the film before we talked, it seems like the film has been positioned more so as a psychological thriller. But hearing you talk, it's it feels like it's very much a sci-fi film. So I'm just curious... Is that something you're cognizant of, first of all? I mean, maybe it's just the way I'm Googling. And then second of all, is that a conscious decision on your part or Momito's part because they think that's a more commercial genre in some way? Yeah, I think maybe it's a, that's a really good point. I've never thought about that. Maybe yes to all three. I know that when we talked to Momito, they were first of all, and you know, people who've, who've gone through the distribution platform, something that they'll often will say is like, hey, and sometimes it's kind, sometimes it's not. But they'll be like, hey, listen, you made this product. Thank you. This is a beautiful product. Now go. Our, yeah. <laughs> Bec- but and because it's like, it's their job to sell products, right? Like, it's like they're in the business of marketing. And obviously, like, even when you said bigger studios and stuff like that, where you'll hear like, yeah, the marketing team made this thing. And sometimes the filmmaker can have advice or something like that. But sometimes it's just like the marketing di- distribution team takes that over. So with Mamitu, I, I imagine that that's how whatever, you know, their analytics show, like that's how they've been, they've been leaning at it. And I think, I think that definitely fits, you know, how do you put, and I'm just using just as an easy comp, like, you know, a black mirror thing, like, yeah, it is technically sci-fi, right? Futuristic things like that, but it's certainly not you know, sci-fi is kind of like this bigger, like genre kind of thing, you know? So it is like a psychological thrill and that kind of stuff as well. And I feel electric sleep probably falls within that kind of thing. I think for me, a sci-fi just naturally comes to mind because I just love, I just love sci-fi. It's probably just the thing that's more on the tip of my tongue, but I think like classifying them as both uh, does justice to the project. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's probably just more how I just think of it in my mind. But or just like there's no spaceships. So they think that they're worried about some sort of blowback, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The genre community. No, that's a good point. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I, do people think of Jurassic Park as a sci fi film? I mean, like, technically, you know, but, but most people usually, most people usually won't, not in the same way that you might think of. Arrival, right? Or interstellar as sci-fi, you know? So, and I think that's just, I guess that's the conversation about just genres in general. I mean, much less, you know, like the horror genre, that's a whole nother like can of worms altogether, right? Like, but I I think that the great thing about like sci-fi and thrillers is like the two can't, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can just kind of tie in, you know, to, to each other. I do believe that Jurassic Park is listed as a drama. When you go to watch it, which is really bizarre to me, it's like, come on, at least like, I don't know, action adventure, maybe. I don't know. But uh, funny. <laughs> it, it just shows, it's a really, I don't know. That's a really good point. Like, it's interesting to think like, who's the person like at the top when they're just like debating, 
um there's only 13 minutes of dinosaur so drama is right so it's like if you liked michael douglas in the game you know or if you liked hell or high water maybe jurassic park is also for you because they're all dramas technically you know so so i wanted to ask a little bit about the way that you were, were kind of forced to make your movie because you said that you shot part of it, you know, in 2019 or so, and then you were going to gear up to do some some more shoot days in 2020, but then pandemic, and you had to wait probably till what, like 2022 before you shot the rest of it or 2021, maybe? I think it was it was just later in 2020, you know, I mean, oh, okay. 2020 was such just an incredible pressure cooker where the world, we were like learning things so quick, right? You know, just, hey, you can do this and then, okay, this is okay. And I think like for us, knowing the pickups that we had, and again, we only had a hundred or so crew members. So, you know, no, but um, like, you know, <laughs> it would often be, you know, like myself and like the DP, right? You know, so like for the pickup stuff, we kind of knew already. And we were obviously very cognizant of what the other studios and stuff were doing. You know, like we were, we were able to, pretty much like kind of mirror and reflect, you know, like what they were doing and how does that apply, you know, to us. But like, even I'm just thinking about like one of the pickup shots was like Amber, Amber Rockwell, his wife, for instance, like we have a scene of like one of the, you know, Craig, our, our main kind of bad, bad guy. He's watching like an old video recording because our, you know, it was like, Hey, this, I think this kind of thing will help kind of really kind of bridge this scene and, you know, will help, like show like a bit different side of the character. So like shooting her scene, for instance, was just her. I remember when we shot that, that was like later in 2020 kind of thing. But like, that was just her where it was only three of us there and myself, Tim, my DP, and then her. So we were able to, you know, give space, you know, all that kind of thing. It was like film, like on a camera, you know, like we could kind of walk her through that without even getting closer than 10 feet, you know? So like we were able to kind of do those kind of things, you know, like, hey, here's a laugh here, tape it right here, you know, that kind of stuff that we were able to work around. Thankfully, we didn't have like any big, you know, big scenes with a lot of people and things like that. At that point, we had kind of, we had captured all that stuff ahead of time. So it was almost more of like finding the, 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 the motor, the motor, motor, the stuff that you used to like put bricks together. It was almost like kind of doing that kind of stuff. Mortar. Uh, to kind of, mortar. Mortar. There you go. Yeah, I was yeah. right. A little bit, maybe. I'm not yeah, no, you're right. right. <laughs> but yeah so i know well, i understand oh, oh go on sorry i no. I, I was kind of like getting to a question yes go. but go like go. i didn't really actually get to the, the, the so the point of what i was trying to ask was like what, go that big of a break story-wise like how did you keep the story and the, the performances in your mind and keep that like being smooth when going yeah. into pickups like over a year later, like was was it just because you had the edit to reference? Was that what was helpful or was it some or do you just were you just dialed into the script or? Well, I mean, I think I mean, I think as directors and you probably know this as well. It's like even before you're shooting, you're probably so familiar with your scripts, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like I if you tell me what's happening in this scene, I kind of know like what's happening here and there and things like that. And so if you just think about like amplifying that times a hundred, you know, at that point, not only had we known the story, but like, we've, we've already been looking at edits at that point, you know? So like, we, we can see like where the story goes and everything. And not only just the story, but literally in the editing process, as you know, you've already kind of come to terms with, oh, we wanted to incorporate this thing that was in the script, maybe weren't able to capture that, that didn't come across well, et cetera, et cetera. That happens in the editing process. So we were already 
we were, we, our focus had already kind of changed. Like now we're, now we're looking at what the story is going to be versus our original intentions of it. So like kind of going into that, we were already in the mind frame of, oh, this is a thing that needs to happen right here because of this happens like literally in the, in the end, like this is the missing Lego piece for building this, you know, this spaceship, right? You know, it's not like we're just kind of like guessing at that point. Like we, we already knew, and I, especially for myself, you know, and I think that's just the work, right? That's just prep work, like any kind of thing, whether, you know, it's first day of shooting or pickups, you know, you know what you need to do, what you're looking to do. And at least how I kind of approach on set, like directing is like knowing my, for my, my, my foundation, knowing my roadmap as much as possible. So then if the talent like wants to try it a different way or something like that, I still know the direction we're going. It's just, Oh, you don't want to listen to country. You want to listen to blues. That's okay. We're still in the same car going to the same location. You know, we can change up the music. You know, that's not going to, that's not going to change the the road trip. It's a very random analogy, but uh, <laughs> that's how I approached it at least. I wanted to ask a little bit about casting. I understand the pulling of favors to get different crew rates, especially working as an AD. You know, you meet a lot of amazing people who may be willing to be flexible with you. Yeah. And both Ulrich and I have made features in your, I don't know what your budget range is, but probably (laughs) somewhere around your budget range, possibly. We might have made a little, had a slightly bigger budget, possibly. So I guess my question is, and I also, sorry, just for added context, I used to be a casting director. So okay. like as you're attaching talent and you're having agents and managers say, are you fully funded or what is the budget? Can you talk us a little bit about navigating those conversations or was the entire casting people you already knew and you didn't have to go through that rigmarole? Yeah. First of all, as a casting director, you are a superhero. You guys are. <laughs> I mean, I'm not one now, but they are. Yes. Casting directors yeah. are superheroes. Yes. Such like a crazy unsung. I don't know. I, I could, I, I gush about casting directors all the time. For us, it kind of goes back to like thinking about that sandbox that we have. So this might sound a bit strange, but you know, to be transparent again, like we knew it's like, Hey, we want to be sci-fi. We want stuff. We wanted people that look like us on screen. And the unfortunate thing is People that look like me don't get those opportunities very often. You know, it's oftentimes like Highlanders, like there can only be one or there can only be two kind of thing like that. And so for, for both Ben and I, we knew going in this thing, it was pretty simple. We knew we were going to be writing for like an older male black. We know that there's black guys that have been putting in the work for years and years and years. And oftentimes just through the luck of the draw, the best they can have is police officer number two. So like our whole thing was, we just got to find like those people, the people have been putting in the work, like talent wise, like you can't, you can't, you can't approach it. Like they're great. You know, Mikhail, Mikhail Miller, who, who played Wallace, phenomenal, just phenomenal actor. I mean, incredible. And, you know, when these guys were coming to read, I mean, everybody who came to read was obviously very special in their way. But the thing about Mikkel is like, you could tell, like, this is someone who's like, what's the difference between this person and somebody that maybe we see on screen? And as we know, it's like, sometimes it might come down to like you versus another person, but you know, oh, your earlobe was too big or something like that, you know? And that's the unfortunate truth. And I think that's why actors are just so special for like the, the work that they're constantly putting in for themselves, you know, that whole audition process. But when it came to Mikkel, you know, we told him like, hey, not only is it this story, but for us personally, we just want to see a black man like hug his daughter on screen. 
and the movie not be about police brutality. <laughs> like that's, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's, it's the movie is its thing. And we were very proud of that. But like for both Ben and I, it was about more than that, you know, that kind of representation. And I remember talking to Mikkel specifically, you know, talking about the movie. And I was, went into the, 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 the realistic thing of it. It's like, Hey, we've got this location for only this amount of days. We are going to be running pages, you know, just shooting these things out. And thankfully we were able to have ample time for rehearsals and things like that, which goes to their credit, you know, like we pretty much had things dialed in. So by the time we're on set, you know, we're only like tweaking little small things for the most part. But I told Mikkel, I was like, Hey man, this thing works or doesn't work by you and the work that you're doing. And a lot of actors like that, you know, like a lot of actors like, no, it's like, hey, yes, even though technically we'll be in coverage and things like that, this was not something that we wanted to approach as in, just give it to me and we'll find the edit. It was more like, no, 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 this thing lives and dies with you. And your face is going to be on a poster like that. This is something that I want to give to you at the end of this project. Your face is going to be on the poster. Like we appreciate the work that you're doing. And even though we might not be able to compensate that to your fair value financially, I knew that that was something that was very important I'm for Ben, for myself, and being able to collaborate with an actor and all the actors really that, that understood where we were coming from because we knew what we were giving. We knew that like, you give us this thing, we are not going to stop. We knew this wasn't going to be a project where it's like, hey, we're going to that thing that we shot. Oh, I don't know. We kind of lost steam. Like, no, like Ben and I were in it at every single step, you know, like... <laughs> through the pandemic, you know, and VFX and color, like all that journey, and then being able to come full circle. And, you know, Mikkel hadn't seen the movie until we screened it. And our first screening was at the Culver City Film Festival. That's out, you know, right out there at like the Regal Cinema. So, you know, the first time we're screening, you know, in a theater screen, and like he's coming up and he's just like that, you know, and anyways, it was a very special, very special moment, you know, because he's, you know, on set, he's just like, I hope these guys know what they're doing as he's just touching the air and, you know, seeing the VFX, seeing the color and all that <laughs> stuff coming together. Our composer, you know, like everybody was so intentional in their craft. And I think that's a beautiful thing about filmmaking is that when all these people kind of come together, you can make something really, 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 really special. And yeah, our talent was absolutely no, no exception. Yeah. Well, I mean, I adore that answer, but I, I'm going to press you slightly because I'm just curious in the front end of getting mm -hmm. to Mikhail and getting yeah. to actors, did you have to, how did you pitch that to an agent or manager? How did you explain scale to them? How sure. did you tell them about your resources? A, a lot of emerging filmmakers listen to this podcast. They might have a partially funded or fully funded feature at less than 100K and an agent or manager is not going to let them through the doors, right? Yeah. So how did you yeah. get through those doors? No, it was really, it's really easy. I, uh, we didn't. You knew them personally. You no, no. Uh, I mean, but I mean, the, the great thing about living in LA is that there is an abundance of talent, like an incredible abundance. And so, you know, I, and this is I, I, what agents and managers do is so important. But again, and I'm, I'm speaking just for myself, you know, like talking to a lot of people of color. I mean, how often do we even hear it now with bigger projects and people say, oh, I would have loved to work with that filmmaker at bigger levels. And then they're like, well, I wanted you. I sent you the stuff. Well, why didn't I get it? Oh, your manager shut it down. Like we see this stuff. We have we see it happen all the time. And for us, again, like I knew immediately, like I was like, no, no, this is something we're going to we're going to put. I believe we just did uh, L.A. casting. 
And no, and we, again, we had time. So we knew the audition process and all that stuff. Like that's the resource that we had in doing, but oh no, like the idea of even going to someone's representation or something like that, that's not, I mean, that's, that's how you kill the project. Like before it even starts, because that, that, that cost of entry is, is so high. But I will say the interesting thing that happened was that I think with some of the talent, they had representation and they told me they would have conversations with the representation and they're just like, Hey, look, I'm doing this film. This is why I'm getting paid. There's not going to be a cutoff of anything, but those talent tend to be in the thing where for them being, a, being, you know, top build in a feature film is might go f- equally as long as, oh, great. Again, I got a chance to play soldier number 13, you know, on episode of SWAT. And that's not knocking SWAT, but it's just, you know, it's there, it's almost like different ladders in a way. So like I, I knew for us, we were just going to approach it from the, from the get go. We were just trying to be a moving horse and we were just telling people, Hey, if you don't want to do this, if the budget, the rate doesn't work out, understand completely. Oh my goodness. I understand completely. But I know that there's the next person in line will. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's how we approached it, you know, with, with respect to, you know, uh, any other people that understandably couldn't maybe do something like that at the time. Um, but of course, on the flip side, you know, at the very end, it is interesting where, you know, I had somebody who we had originally wanted to be in the movie and just didn't able to work out. He came to the screening, you know, and he's watching it there. And then he comes to me after he's like, I made a mistake. Aww. I should have. I should have been a part of this, you know, and, and, and again, he's a, he's a good friend of mine. So, you know, I don't mind sharing that because we work together on so many other projects, but like, I think that's that thing where, you know, I'm, I'm not a name or anything like that. So I understand that people that take a risk on me, like it would be unfair to assume that, you know, I can't believe they didn't take a chance on me. Like, no, no, no. I have to come equally as correct, if not more so, but now, just because of this project that has opened up so many more conversations, because now when I make stuff, I'm like, hey, I don't have the rate that you want, but you can look at the body of work, yeah. you know, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. The other qu- question that everybody who listens to this podcast wants to know is like, how do you raise money? Because raising oh. money is like the hardest part of one of the hardest parts of making a movie. Yeah. I mean, just trying to make a movie under 20 days is, is almost impossible. And I can't believe that we've all done it, but we have. <laughs> it's nuts. We are the, we are the exceptions to the rules, man. It's a, a, a party. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I kind of feel like under 20 is like the, the rule, the yeah. rule <laughs> these days, <laughs> at least in, in indie filmmaking. You're just a trailblazer. That's all. <laughs> But yeah, so how did you raise the budget? How did you like? How did that process work? And how did you able? How did you make it happen? Man, so I I think the biggest when it came down to the budget, I think the best piece of advice I got that Ben and I actually got from uh, we kind of took like this random online class that I think we had heard on a podcast. This guy was a guest, and you know, usually like those times, it's with a grain of salt. But this guy was saying stuff, and we were kind of resonating with, uh, resonating with it. And he kind of had like this harsh thing. He's like. People don't care about your project. People don't invest starting out in your project. No one cares. But what people are going to invest in is you. And so when we knew that, it really became finding the Venn diagram, truthfully, find the Venn diagram of people who might have funds that might be a bit more discretionary income, you know, finding that. Us doing our work on our budget to make sure, again, thinking about that sandbox, you know, it's like, no, 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 we we, we don't want to scale bigger than this because odds are we're going to spill out a little bit outside of the sandbox that we planned, but we can't be scaling bigger than this. And then just literally asking the people, like literally just creating a list and you kind of start from like your big fish first, 
like, you know, if you're trying to raise $100,000, find those people that might be able to give you $100,000. You might be able to get one. Or if someone says, hey, I can't give you 100,000, I might give you 50,000. Okay, cool, you're halfway there. Or I can give you 25,000. Cool, because oftentimes, as we know, like when it comes to fundraising, Sometimes just that first money in is like the trickiest kind of thing, right? You know, it's like once you can show this, like, oh, I'm trying to raise a hundred thousand, but somebody's already given me 30. Oh, well, if somebody's already given you 30, then yeah, I can give you 10 or I can give you five or I can donate five pizzas or whatnot. And 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 for us, it really came from that. Um, the the people that invested, you know, one was a a, a close friend of ours from college who had been encouraging, even when I was back, you know, in college, you know, he always like loved the projects, the shorts that I made. And then he happened to be in a position where he's like, Hey, I know you guys are doing this. I'm investing in you all. You guys have never made a film this length. I've never been a, an EP before. So we're all kind of learning on this together. So we kind of had two main people like that. And then from there on, it was just, you're just bridging the gaps, right? You're, you know, going down the list of, Hey, we're looking for this. Hey, we're looking for this. Hey, this thing ended up costing more, but the money that we had got us through production. And so, you know, as of course, as filmmakers, even though I don't like this process, it is oftentimes easier if you need to raise money for posts. If you're not, you know, you're not talking about some ethereal thing. You're like, no, no, no. Look at the clips. Like I could send you a link to the movie. Now I just need to get sound designer. Now I just need to get color or things like that. But yeah, from the inception, we, we knew we didn't. I mean, you know, it, it happens, but we weren't going to try to fund this thing with credit cards. You know, we weren't obviously trying to take out, you know, different kind of, you know, loans and things like that, because truthfully, our budget wasn't that big for that. Anyways, you know, we were at the place where we knew it was just going to be private financing. And unfortunately for Ben or myself, neither of us had, you know, the the aunt or uncle or something like that. That's like, yeah, I've got, you know, 100K. Let me just... Right. So we didn't have that luxury either. I mean, it's great when people do have that. So we had to be a bit more judicial in our approach. But yeah, a lot of phone calls, really. When it came out, just a lot of a lot of phone calls, a lot of just grinding. But when you make an indie film, you're grinding in every other thing either. So, you know, it's it's not exactly uh the most uncomfortable feeling when you're used to that across the board. So yeah. I, I do think it's time for our final questions, but Alric, did you have any more before we get there? I guess the last one would be like, since you made your, your, your first feature, like what were some of the big takeaways for you as a director? Like, you know, just creatively, like what are, what are some things that you learned that you're going to take into your next project? Yeah. In a weird way, I can answer that uh, in this kind of really unique thing. Obviously we, we were filming over such a amount of time that while we were like in between breaks with shooting, I got asked to shoot like this kind of like, web series that had a much higher budget than our feature film did ironically enough and so i was able to take like certain things that i learned from Men electric sleep and like literally apply it in real time and see like if that worked some things that you know that we were able to apply that we did with electric sleep that you i just want to keep honing was prep you know and that means different things different people I'm not the kind of person to storyboard out everything, but I definitely do shot lists, every kind of thing, you know, and, and stuff like that. Like just using that time, using that prep kind of stuff on set, you know, learning as I think as a director, just to keep being more and more concise, you know, being directed is all about communication and how quickly can you communicate, give notes, give adjustments to an actor in the shortest amount of time to, to shrink the time between cut and action which is also, I think, the AD part of me as well. Like you're always a bit cognizant of that kind of thing. Casting, 
that's huge. You know, that's something we were able to do with Electric Sleep and something I learned so much. And I know that different directors had different approaches and opinions on, on this, but I think I kind of fall into the thing of like 80% of directing talent is casting, you know, and like being intentional in that process just makes the onset experience just all the more better, you know? So I think little things like that, obviously management, learning how to work with bigger things, working with timelines, knowing how timelines shift, adapt, building in that kind of consent contingency kind of stuff. These are things that I've been able to apply both with that web series, Smoky Mountain Rescue, and with other projects down the line. Yeah, there's so many, again, like, I think like just like a marathon is just so much more than just running, you know, it's like the mental fortitude of like, what do you do when you're past mile one, past mile two, past mile five, past mile 10, there's so many little small things. And that's one of the things I'm so appreciative for an electric sleep on is because that was my my learning process. But then I can look back and say, oh yeah, even my learning process, we were still able to accomplish things that we wanted to and audiences have, have enjoyed watching it. So yeah. All right. So we're on to our final six questions. So question one, what's the first film you ever made? It could be the short, it could be a feature. Just what's the first film you ever made? You don't really have to go into it too much. We just really want to hear about how you feel about it now. Oh, easy. That's my sophomore year in college, I transferred to Southern Adventist University out in Tennessee. I made a short film called Late, which I thought was great. Uh, and I still do. Uh, we had like this old tulip crane there and nobody used it in a while. So like I was like one of the first projects to like use a tulip crane, I think. We had this super dope uh, skateboarding kind of shot. Yeah. And we did this something, this thing that was like really, really unique and intuitive. And I don't think anybody's ever done, especially in an indie film, where the whole film is just a dream as the person wakes up at the very end is like, oh no, it was all a dream. <laughs> I don't think anybody's done that before. So that was really cool to be like on the cutting edge, the cutting edge of that. But yeah, late. I love that. Ironically, Ben started it uh, back then. He was doing a lot of acting. So yeah, that was 15, 16 years ago. Love that project. Amazing. <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Be realistic about what you want to make and why, because I think, you know, talking to filmmakers and stuff like that and people are like, oh man, this isn't what I wanted or this isn't what I expected. And it's like, why? Like, I can't, I love, I, was really, you know, I love Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Like, I love it. Like, but I can't make a movie and be like, and then I make, you know, like, I'm like, why is it not Terminator 2, Judgment Day? It's like, that's not, they're not even comparable, you know? But like, if instead, if I looked at something as in like, Oh, I wanted to make something that had these kind of elements that entertain, like, and I, and I define that from the beginning, that means that at the very end of it, I can look and see if I hit those kind of markers. I think, especially when you're starting out and you don't have the resources that a studio film, you know, would have, you know, or even a high level independent film would have knowing that, like hearing that kind of advice really helped me frame how I approach each project where it's like, okay, on this project, I'm looking, of course, the storyteller get better, but I'm really looking to increase production value. So that means that, no, I might have to now pay for a bigger crew in order to get certain kind of things here. Or I'm really looking to work with actors more on this thing. But just defining that at the start, it just sets realistic expectations. You know, like I guess going back to the marathon analogy, just running a marathon, if you've never run a marathon is big. Who cares if it took eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours? Like don't compare yourself to like, 
the person who's doing it in a sub three hour thing, be happy that you ran the marathon. That was the goal starting out, like just getting across the finish line. And then on the next one, just try to maybe do it in eight hours instead of 10 hours or something like that. But yeah, I think understanding that just from the, from the start helped me so much in just how I approach just the process and how I approach, you know, every project that I, that I do. Tell us some bad advice that someone's given you that has to do with making a career. <laughs> People want to hear your story. I think that's terrible advice. I think that's, <laughs> that's not good. I, I mean, I, I heard this, this example from somebody and, and it's just a story that's always stuck with me. You know, people are like, oh, Hollywood's looking for new voices. And he uses this story. It's like, if you think this is true and you're in Kansas, go on a flight, come out to LAX, jump into Uber, go to Universal Studios. And at the gate, when they ask you, it's like, hey, don't worry, guys, I'm that new, I'm that new storyteller people are looking for and see if they let you on the lot. You know, like, and maybe this is for me because I I, I want to keep working and, and aiming toward that studio kind of level. I, I love that kind of filmmaking. Understanding is, yes, people do in theory, yes, want to hear your story, but there's so much more than filmmaking than just a story. There's so much more in filmmaking than just a story, especially operating at that kind of level. I remember hearing J.J. Abrams have a conversation about The Force Awakens when he did it. And he said, the reason why directors like him get paid that much is not to make the movie. That's That's a part of it for sure. But it's not just for that. It's the two years after the movie's done and you don't know what time zone it is and you're in Thailand and you got to talk about this movie like it's the greatest thing in the world when you haven't slept, you know, and all this, like there's so much more to these, to these things than just besides, you know, Theo and his own unique voice, depending on the kind of project that you make. And I think for me and knowing the kind of projects that I want to make, yes, my story is a part of it as a director. I think that naturally happens, but that's certainly not where it begins and where it ends is just me. So do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I mean, yeah, I think, I think I'm like my, you know, of course, like I think, you know, to, to make a good project, to make a better project, you know, to push yourself. But I think if I was talking about like maybe a physical goal, I'm just very interested in the studio world. I think studio films are so interesting in how they, how they interact, you know, with the culture of, of art, but you know, it's show business as well. You know, I just think, I think that world is just very interesting, you know, because different films exist for different reasons, you know, fast and the furious, you know, may not be for everybody, but that funds a lot of small filmmakers, right? Because they're making these movies and making a lot of movies. And of course the discord with Marvel films, you know, takes that to another level. For me personally, you know, like I grew up, I love comics. My dad's a pastor. The first book I ever read was the Bible. The second one was a Spider-Man comic. I think superhero movies are so interesting. And being able to be raised in the golden age kind of a super, superhero movies, I would love the opportunity to like do one of those. Uh, just maybe approaching from like a unique perspective and stuff. Because we do see those kind of stories oftentimes, you know, stick out with the Logans, you know, or even like the Infinity Wars and, and things like that. And of course, the Dark Knights, right? And that kind of stuff. So for me personally, I would love to maybe like do one of those things. But at the same time, those projects, there's so many other variables that have to happen, you know, like at that kind of level and stuff like that. So I think that's like one of the little things like for me personally that I'm like, yeah, I'm always like striving for that. But also at the same time, it's not like at that doesn't happen. I'm like, oh, I'm a failure. You know, I think that's just like a little thing. Like for me, if I ever got the opportunity to, I would love to get a shot for something like that. 
If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself? I would have made a feature earlier. I would have made one in college. Without a doubt, I would have, I would have made just something long form just to get it out of the way. And that's, pro- that's probably the main thing, really. Yeah. Especially, you know, being able to get a chance to go to a school that had film gear, even though understandably, I get why film schools push so much for like making a short, honing a short, things like that. I think professionals like yourself, if you looked at, you know, I don't know how many directing jobs there are every year. Let's say there's 10,000. I'm just making a number. Say it's 10,000. The number of people that actively go from like making a short film to getting one of those directing jobs that are paid to do is probably much smaller. And I've heard this from, you know, professional producers and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I'm going to take the chance on the person that's made a feature over the person that made like a $50,000 short film that had eight days to shoot 10 pages, you know, because that realistically doesn't transfer into the business part of it. You know, when you're, you know, when you're looking at that per day kind of thing like that. So I wish I made a feature film in college and learned that mentality and, and, and could start honing that from, from there. Me too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last question is making movies hard. Well, it's, it's certainly not as easy as finding a penny on the street. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to get too deep with it, but you know, I mean, like we're not, we're not curing cancer, right? Like we're, we are entertaining. Even if the entertainment means a documentary, you know, learning about something to, you know, blow up and stuff like that. But at the same time, yeah, because there's no path, right? There's no path. And the person that tells you, hey, well, I did it this way. You're just like, yeah, as soon as you kind of did it that way, that door was closed off behind you. You know, like you you hear about <laughs> filmmakers 20 years ago and there's like, yeah, like I shot music videos and I owned a camera and then I shot this music video and then I got into a commercial and then I got picked to do bad boys. That does not happen anymore as technology goes, right? Or, and, and, and clearly we're, of that same age group where we can kind of see, you know, going from like mini DV tape, right. To like digital cameras. to like now all of a sudden, you know, like the 5d revolution, right. To like now, if you search filmmaker on, you know, your, your social platform of choice, there's a lot of filmmakers that call themselves filmmakers and not belittling what they do, but there's certainly difference maybe. And, you know, you, you all having made feature films and maybe myself who just films a sunset, throws a LUT on it, right? But now, like, we're as the technology grows, you know, like, filtering through and and so much other stuff changes and things as well. So in that aspect, absolutely, because there is no one way to skin a cat, which is a terrible analogy, but there is no one way to do that. But then at the same time, it's kind of up to every individual person to, like, do the research for themselves to kind of find what they feel will be the best one. And there's no guarantee that it pays off, right? It's not like, oh, if you just do this, if you make 10 shorts, somebody will, like a, like a magical tooth fairy of film will like, you know, leave like, you know, an investment deal. First like deal underneath your pillow after your, after your last screening <laughs> of your short. It doesn't work like that either. So yeah, on that end, it is. And it can be lonely, you know, because most people don't, most people aren't artists. I think being an artist in general can be a bit of a lonely walk because most people can't relate with what you're doing, you know? So in that aspect, yeah, it's hard, but it's certainly, we're not, we're not curing cancer out here. You know, we're not fighting in war, you know, for, for perspective. 
Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Theo? I remember things I'm not allowed to say uh, right now. I remember just things I'm not allowed to say. I remember him telling us the actual budget of his film, which I will not say, Theo. I'm not going to tell people. But that's all I can think about in this moment is the secret. The secret that no one can know. Also, he's just a very lovely, warm guy. And I wanted to shout out Jessica Ellis, who recommended Theo and connected, connected us with him in the first place. Nice. Yeah, this I don't think this is part of the secret. I do think he did say this off air, but I don't think it's a secret is that like they they had a visual effects artist working on this for like a couple years. He might have also said that on the show. I can't remember, but it just like it's a thing to to remember that if like you have a sci fi feature idea and you can find some people who are going to help you with the, the visual effects, let it take time. Like, does it matter? Like if you don't, if you have that, that team member who is willing to put in the time or you're able to find some people who can help, you know, build your, your effects from Fiverr or other places or whatever, do that and just, just chill. And like, you know, for a budget that is like, we cannot mention, <laughs> but is not high. Let's just put it that way. You can have a movie that looks as good as this movie looks. Cause like, if you watch the trailer, this thing looks really impressive and like, I would never have guessed that the budget was what it is based off of the trailer that I saw. So indie filmmakers, take note, take your time. Don't rush things. And on that note, it's time for our segment. You're the expert. You're the expert. What is you're the expert, you ask? Well, it is a hand spun homemade segment from our producer, Eric Toms, where he decides that we're experts in something and we attempt to fill the time by answering a question he asks us. So the question today is, how do you earn a living while making indie films? Auric, how do you earn a living? So the way I do this is through working as a post producer. But before this job I have now, I was a freelance you know, videographer, producer, sound person, editor, director, like kind of whatever I could do in filmmaking. I kind of had a really lucky start where like I, I started as a PA, did that for a while, got an internship at a company. They trained me in a bunch of technical stuff. And then I was able to like, you know, branch out from that job to a bunch of other jobs. And it, I worked at a rental house that was also a production company. And so I would rent gear out to like random people, but then I'd also prep all the gear for all our internal shoots. And so the the people, the freelancers that worked on those shoots, I got to become friends with. And then the people who rented from, from us, I also got to, got to know. And so almost all my work in my life has come from that job. Like even my day job that I have now, I met the owner of that company because he rented stuff for me on his first year at his, when his company <laughs> was born like 11 years ago. And we like stayed in contact all those years later. And then like I ended up getting a job at his company that I'm like been at three, three years now. So it's like it's funny how like you could just trace everything back to like that internship and me saying yes to something that was like I'd already done four internships. And I was like, why do I need another internship? But like it was such the right move to take that after college and do that internship. And then it led to like a full time job eventually. And then it led to like my whole freelance career. And I mean, and for years I, when when they would get calls for things that were too small for them, the new person who took over my position would call me and say, hey, 
this person wants a shoot, but it's too low budget. Will you take it? And I'd be like, yes, I will take that. And then they would put me in contact and I would get all these jobs from like that hub. So what I'm trying to say is don't sniff at small opportunities that don't seem like they're they're worth it. And like, oh, I don't need to intern. I have experience. I have three years experience. I shouldn't intern at anything. Like maybe take another look and maybe see like that could be a thing that could spread out and like, you know, turn your career into something different. Anyways, Liz, what do you do to make money when you're not making movies? Oh, that is I love the message of that. And I realize, you know, Eric's asking what can someone do to make a living, but it's phrased as in like, what do you do? Right. So I'm going to try to (laughs) straddle both both (laughs) questions. I have always been interested in like teaching or consulting or artist support. And so I've combed together a freelance career where I'm a producer's rep, but I also do some teaching from time to time, some public speaking. I write editorial pieces about the state of distribution and in general, try to support indie filmmakers with the knowledge I have about independent film and distribution. I don't know if everyone knows what a producer's rep does, but a producer's rep is like essentially your point person who advocates for you and pitches your film with distributors and platforms. But they're really looking out for you. And some of us work with an upfront fee and some of of us work with a percentage of commission. But it's a little bit different than a sales agent who comes from a sales agency and they're always having the interests of the agency in mind. Producer's rep is at least the way I interpret it, is a member of your team supporting you in the marketing distribution festivals of your film. And I found that this little weird pocket of editorials, artist support, distribution, teaching has also allowed me a really wonderful platform for networking with filmmakers, right? I work for the Film Collaborative as their distribution consultant. And there's this intake form where anyone who wants to work with the Film Collaborative, all the people who work for the Film Collaborative read the intake forms. So every day I'm seeing different titles and different names of filmmakers and what their movies are about. And it gives me a good vantage point of what's being made, who are the players, what festivals they think are important when you ask them where have they played and what awards they have won. I'm just in a good spot for data gathering. And I like where I am, but I think... When you think about what could you do to make a living while making movies, we've talked about this many times before, you dispense with the myth that you're for sure going to make money making movies. And you think about how can you lead a long-term career, right? Not necessarily a short-term career, like the way Alric and I are talking about our jobs is like many steps led to them. They weren't one-offs, right? There's a continuum of the story of how we got to where we are today. So first of all, like, think about the fact that it's very hard to make money in independent film and think about maybe you want to make movies on the side as a hobby until you have something really consistent and reliable for your filmmaking career to lean on because it's just a massive, massive gamble right now. But in addition to that, pick something that's adjacent to what you love, you know, I wouldn't say, Arik, that you your favorite thing in the world is post-producing. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's not your number one thing that you adore, but it's close to filmmaking, right? <laughs> right. And you get to be creative. And I feel that way about what I do. It's like I get to be a member of a film team all the time and I get to be creative in how I work with filmmakers. Yeah. 
I think like the the thing that to me like is the perfect job is one where you don't have to worry about it. So like freelancing can be tough because like you have to worry about freelancing mm-hmm. and you have to constantly be finding your next client, your next job, whatever. And like when you're not working, you can spend all your time trying to find work. And then when you are working, you're too busy to work on a movie. And like I had that problem. And when I just had to like take time off to like make movie and actually make my movie and actually turn jobs down. And then like. You know, you don't want a job where you're too busy, where you don't have time to do any, anything, where you're like, it just takes up too much of your time. So like the sweet spot is like something that like you're not too creative at your day job. So you can save that creativity for your art. But and that like you have a lot of flexibility, like in your schedule, but that it's a set full time position where you don't have to worry about it. That's yeah. what I think is like the perfect zone for a job for a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. I completely agree. Now, do you, do you, dear listener, have anything to add? If you do, send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today for all their amazing resources. Thanks to Theo Brown for coming on the show. Thanks to Jessica Ellis for recommending Theo. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Robert Jones for handling all our social media. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you all next week. I'm done. Okay, sorry. No, Auric, take it over. Take it on. Go forth. (laughs) Take it over and take it on. (laughs) 